Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives him life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. And this is God's Word. You may be seated. Thank you. Inside of the announcement sheet is an outline that you can use as we go through our our study of Romans we are going to be looking at the 8th chapter, the first, uh, actually the first 17 verses, although Sid just read for us the first 11. And uh, tonight we are going to, uh, to continue the study and finish out Romans chapter 8 tonight. This morning we're thinking about no condemnation tonight. The last, uh, the last words of Romans chapter 8, no separation. So not, no condemnation this morning, no separation tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, when we think about the beauty of the Gospel and the richness of of love that it expresses to us, we are are just staggered under the the, the humility that it it, it bears out in us, Father, to know that, that we as... Your children are loved so. Our prayer, Father, is with, with the, the universe, the, the galaxy of, of meaning and depth in this chapter, that we will glean from it what, what we can this morning, Father, and enrich our hearts and minds and souls in, in such a way that, that we find ourselves being drawn to You more and more and more each day. To this end, Father, we ask that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, so that we do turn to You. Bless us in this way, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
the word disciple. The word disciple is an interesting word. For most people, the word disciple means a, a person who practices a lot of willpower. For other people, when they think of a disciple, they think of somebody who has decided to give up or to go without, you know, you just fill in the blank. When Paul thinks about uh, a disciple, and when we think about Paul's life, we know that he would be one of the last people in the world to say that the life of a disciple is easy. But I think Paul would say that a disciple lives in grace and not by grit. That a disciple lives in grace and not by grit. Think for a moment about why you might not do something in your life. Why you might not do it. You might say, if I do it, God will make something bad happen to me. Or you might say, uh, if I do this, I'll be acting against my, my Christian value system. Or I'm not going to do this because I might hurt somebody. Or I might, uh, I might hate myself in the morning. Or it would be embarrassing. If I do this thing, it might be embarrassing to me or somebody in my family. Some of those might be accurate. But they are inadequate. They are fear-based motivations. A fear-based motivation meaning that if I don't do this or if I do decide to do it, something negative is going to happen to me. There's going to be something, some punishment, some pain, some suffering that's going to come into my life. They are fear-based motivations and they do not last. I mean, just think, if, if fear is the primary tool in parenting a small child, what happens when that child is no longer afraid? At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's been writing about love. And he says, these are the three that remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, say it, love. In 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You go to the next chapter, 1 John chapter 5. This is love for God to keep His commands. And Jesus Himself said in John chapter 14, in, in verse 15, He says, if you love Me, what are you going to do? Keep My commands. In other words, a fear-based discipleship, meaning that it, that's your motivation, fear that some bad thing is going to happen to you. Fear-based discipleship reveals a shallow understanding of the Gospel. The Gospel does not call human beings out of one form of legalism and plop them down into another form that is equally driven by fear. That's why Paul in chapter 8, that beginning phrase, is going to be emphatic. It's emphatic in the sense, you don't really get this in the English translation, but in the original language, that first phrase, there is not a verb anywhere in that. Now, for English teachers, that would drive them nuts because it's not a complete sentence. It's not a proper sentence. You don't have a verb. But even in English, we get how emphatic that is. When you want to make sure that somebody gets a point, you throw out the verbs, right? This is something that my dad learned with the three knuckleheads that were me and my brothers. My dad would jettison completely verbs from his vocabulary when he was wanting to make sure that he was making a point to us. Bed. Now. Home. Now. Dinner. Now. 
His favorite. Silence now. (laughs) Outside now. Inside now. You get the point. Literally, Paul is saying, because of all of the other things that he's written all the way up through the end of chapter 7, therefore, no condemnation. No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, what is it that he is underscoring? What is it that he's wanting us to understand with this no condemnation for those that are in Christ? If you are in Christ, he will say, you are secure. You are secure. I want you to circle or underline in your Bibles two words in this text. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is, circle that word. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Next word, underline it or circle it. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation in Christ means that God is not holding anything against you. That God has nothing to punish you for. Condemnation does not exist for people who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation will not return unless at some point you renounce and denounce the faith. One time Jesus said, in talking to His disciples, and they were getting close to that period of time where things were going to get dicey in Jerusalem, not only for the Christ, but for them. And He said, I want you to know something. In John chapter 10, He says, "He says, nobody can snatch you out of My hand. And then in verse 29 of John chapter 10, He says, in the very next verse, He says, My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can, say it, snatch them out of my Father's hand. Brothers and sisters, far, far, way too many disciples need to accept the fact that they are forgiven and secure. Far too many know that they are forgiven, but are not sure about that security thing, that their life is basically moving in and out from under condemnation. That they are being snatched back and forth between the, the hand of God that is loving and the hand of God that is wrath. They feel pretty good about things until they recognize a sin in their life. And then what happens? Emotionally and, and intellectually, they are back under condemnation until they repent. Paul says no condemnation for those that are in Christ. No condemnation. It's more than just words. That's why I had you circle the word because in your Bible. There is a reason for the security that we have in the hands of God. You are free from the law of sin and death because of the law of the Spirit, which I think if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 8, is just another way of saying the Gospel, which is in summary, beginning in, chap- in, in verse 3, that God did this by sending His own Son in the flesh. That verse 3, that He sent Him in the flesh in order to be a sin offering. And that as a sin offering, as he continues in verse 3 of chapter 8, that sin is condemned in the flesh. Why is it condemned in the flesh? Because he's already said in chapter 7 that the power of sin is residing in my body, in my flesh. And then in verse 4 he says, because all of that has taken place on the cross, the righteous requirement has been met for me. And because of that, I now live by the Spirit. No condemnation means that you are secure. 
In fact, why don't you turn to the person beside you and just say, I'm in Christ and I'm not condemned. Take a second to do that. Feel better? I hear some laughter. You must feel better. I'm not condemned because I'm in Christ. I'm secure. No condemnation also means that you live by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you live by the Spirit. I mentioned last week the the old school way of teaching people how to swim. You take them out to the middle of a a lake or, or a tank or a pond in a boat and you throw them out of the boat into the water and, hey, sink or swim. Make it back to shore. If you make it back to shore, you know how to swim. It's on your own. Have you ever known someone who, even though they were forgiven, didn't change them one bit? Didn't change them. They're forgiven, but it, they didn't change. Listen, friends, if, if we can't work our way into a relationship with God by all of our good deeds and our good works, how is forgiveness going to make, forgiveness alone, going to make a difference? When we repent and are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what happens according to Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6? We, we receive the forgiveness of sin and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the key verses of this first section of Romans chapter 8 is verse 9, where Paul tells the church, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. When you were baptized, when you are in Christ, that no condemnation becomes a way of describing your relationship with God, you are no longer in the realm of the flesh, which means that you're no longer a slave to sin. But he continues in verse 9 of chapter 8, you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God, what? Say it. Lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. One of the hallmark truths of the Christian life is the gift of God's Spirit. Have you ever, have you ever just sat down and began to read all of the passages that deal with the benefits of the Spirit in your life? Now, he's going to do that a little bit later in Romans chapter 8. In fact, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. But one of the the hallmark truths of the Christian life is the gift of God's Spirit in your life as you live it today on planet Earth. How you live your life is an expression of your mind. When you are in the first Adam in Romans chapter 7, sin is a power in your fallen nature. You are dominated by that power. You are dominated by that sin. And this is how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. In verse 6, your mind is governed by the flesh. The the mind governed by the flesh is what? Death. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is, say it, hostile to God. Again in verse 7, it it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh, finish it, cannot please God. God. The law in chapter 7 could not fight that power and and weaken it. That law could command and that law could prohibit. But what that law was unable to do was to enable us to live it perfectly. And so now, verse 9, living in the realm of the Spirit where the Spirit of God lives in us, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give what? Life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. It is by the Spirit, in verse 13, that you put to death the misdeeds of the body. In verse 10, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives you what? Life. This means three things. First, even though sin does not kill a disciple, the disciple abhors it even more so. A disciple is not yet delivered from the presence of sin. Even though from the inside out we're being made righteous by by Christ's uh, offer of grace through what He accomplished on the cross and God putting His Spirit in the people of faith, we are still in that, that not yet time where we are saved but not yet fully saved in the sense of being, being completely freed up from this body of sin. A disciple is not yet delivered from the presence of sin, but he has been delivered from the penalty of it. Therefore, when we perceive a transgression, we do not experience the condemnation because in Christ there's what? No condemnation. But what is it that we do encounter? A broken heart. I have a friend that a lot of years ago, about a decade and a half ago, uh, came close to losing everything from his wife and his family to his job because he had gotten neck deep into the quicksand, which is uh, pornography. And at one point he said that uh, he could not feel more burdened by the weight of the condemnation that he felt in his own heart. That he was looking at what he had, he, he had done and, and, and all of that. And he, he just felt, I can't get any lower. I can't get into a, a darker spot. I can't get in a, a, a deeper valley. But he was wrong. The deepest part of his repentance, his word, the deepest part of my repentance came when I understood how my wife's discovery of this addiction to pornography broke her heart. Stayed married. Remained married. The relationship was not broken. But what he encountered, which made him hate it all the more, was a broken heart. I think that's one of the things that the Gospel does, quite frankly, with a disciple. Somebody did a series about walking in the footsteps of Jesus and being conformed to the image of Jesus that we'll talk about tonight. Is that they don't, they don't sense the condemnation, but they sense the brokenheartedness that comes because of just the, the nature of sin. The second thing is a disciple does not fight sin in his own power. A disciple does not fight sin in his own power. It's not a sink or swim proposition when it comes to defeating sin. God's Spirit, whose power resurrected the Christ, is the power that comes to bear in your effort to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And if that's true... The power that resurrected Jesus and brought victory for Him over death is available to us. What might that mean for a life of holiness? What might that mean in our personal experience day to day in Christ, no condemnation, our personal experience day to day with sin? If that power that is able to resurrect Jesus from the dead and not just bounce him back into this kind of life, but to go straight through the middle of death to the other side, that that's available to us, 
What might that mean for our life of holiness? Now again, although we are still subject to sin, could we go a day without sinning? A week without greed and without gossip and without slander and without lies and dishonesty and coveting. A month. Not saying perfect, but by the power of God's Spirit in us, begin to really sense the, the progress of sanctification in our lives as we conform to the image of Jesus. And holiness and godliness begin to expand and to grow and to blossom and to flourish in this life as sin and the misdeeds of the body are put to death more and more and more and more. It's a dumb question. It really kind of insults everybody's intelligence, but I'll ask you anyway. Do you know why airplanes land at airports? It's because that's where the runways are. Too many believers have not had their lives and their hearts and their souls transformed from being in airport allowing everything and anything to land in their heart and soul to being constructed into a temple where God's Spirit dwells. Now the third thing that I mentioned is actually going to be the third point and that is you are a child of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the, say it church, children of God. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are, say it, God's children. You know, there's, there's so much to say here, but I, I want to focus on three words in the very next verse, in verse 17. Now he says in verse 14, we're the children of God. Verse 16, we're God's children. In verse 17, he says, if, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. He doesn't say that we're heirs just with, co-heirs just with Christ, but he says we're heirs of God. We're heirs of God, which, you know, right on the face of it means that all of the inheritance that we have is going to come from God. That it's God's blessings. It's God's stuff. But it's not just that alone. Heirs of God. Having an inheritance that is God Himself is not strange in the Bible. The Levites in the Old Testament did not have a portion in the land So God became their inheritance. Everybody else got land. The Levites got God. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord is their inheritance. Psalm 73, one of the great psalms of of the Old Testament, speaks of the Lord being the psalmist's portion. We sing a song out of Lamentations. It's Jeremiah lamenting over the destruction that's come by the Babylonians onto the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Those words are words that we sing even today, uh, 2,500 years later. Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my what? Portion, says my soul. The Lord is my portion. You know what happens when you become a Christian? 
God gets you. And you get God. When you become a disciple of Jesus, when you become a Christian, God gets you and you get God. And that makes all the difference. All of a sudden, you are reconnected to your Creator who is not just your Maker, but who is also your Father. You know, if you ever go to a restaurant with me, you'll know, you you probably have never ever seen me order anything except water. I love the taste of water. I love the taste of water. Always order at the restaurants, not because I'm cheap and don't want to spend $10 for a Coke, because you know that I'll spend $5 on a cup of coffee at Starbucks. That theory doesn't work, right? I love the taste of water. I'll drink a Fresca every once in a while, but outside of coffee, it's water. That's my drink. Water tastes great. Do you know what makes water taste even better? Thirst. Makes water taste fantastic. Years ago, and all of you who have ever played football in Texas or anywhere else, uh, Oklahoma or anywhere else where you know there's a lot of football being played, you know at some point that field gets uh, worn down and, and you're not really playing on grass or turf, but you're playing in dirt. And it's hot. One afternoon at, at football practice in high school, we had been practicing and practicing, practicing as it was back in the old days when you would do two-a-days in the same day. You got practice, we're parched, it's hot and it's humid and it's dusty. And we're about to die from thirst. I mean, I'm just wondering, am I ever going to be able to make it to a place where I can get some water? And about that time, my mouthpiece fell out into the dirt. And whatever saliva and moisture I had in my mouth was left on that mouthpiece. And guess what got caked all over that mouthpiece? Just enough for it to stick and to become mud. Coach walked over and said, hey, get that off the ground. Put it in your mouth. Where it's supposed to be. Yes, sir. I'd rather do that than do push-ups. But I thought that I would die of thirst as, as that grit and the dirt and the dryness and the parchedness and the sun and the humidity and the sweat... And and all of that, we thought we were going to die of thirst until finally given a water break. And we didn't really expect one because when I played football, I'm not all that old school, but it was old school enough that water made you weak. But I guess he felt sorry for all of those mouthpieces that were falling into the dirt, and so he gave us a water break. And I ran over and I grabbed that big orange cooler with the spigot. That spigot, that water was not going to come out fast enough out of that little spigot. I picked that thing up, ripped the top off, and started pouring that water in the ice into my mouth. And i got to tell you that that was one of those, those times when you are so thirsty and so dry and so parched that as you drink water, you actually feel your body being rehydrated. That's thirst. The Spirit of God wants to give your thirst for God an experience of God that includes no condemnation, that includes the the, the children of God, testimony of the Spirit. But God's Spirit wants to give your thirst for God an experience of God that's not just intellectual. But where you cry out like a child who loves his father and has not seen him for a while, the experience of saying, Abba, 
Father. We're going to talk some more tonight about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus according to Paul in Romans chapter 8. But if you're in Christ, you are secure. And you live your life by the Spirit, which means that God is empowering you every day to experience what it means to live a godly life. And it's not by grit. It's by grace. It's not by fear. It's because love is the greatest. We've talked about this before. You know with your children that when they obey you, you don't really know if they love you or not. What you really know is that they, is that they agree with you. You don't know if they love you until they disagree with you and they obey you anyway. Because of love. Because of the greatness of, of being connected. Because of the greatness of all of those things. You live by the Spirit and, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that God looks upon you and as badly as you might feel about yourself at times and as dirty as you might feel and, 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 and dehydrated from just all of the life going out of you, that when God looks at you, He does not see something ugly, but He sees a beauty. He sees His child. He sees a son. He sees a daughter. And He brings the overabundance of His presence and, and His blessings and His love right there into your life. And it is an impact that is life-changing. We're going to have some shepherds down here at the front that want to meet you and, and talk to you. If, if you've never given yourself to the Christ, have never become a child of God, if you've never been baptized, if, if you've never understood what it really meant to repent and to confess that Jesus is Lord, these men want to talk to you about how that relationship for all of eternity, where you're in God's hand, where nobody can snatch you out, how that can be established today. And if you're thirsty, if you're dry in your heart, parched in your soul, then come down and talk to these men and let them introduce you to God the Father while the rest of us stand and sing together. Worthy of praise is Christ 